Questions. How many of you actually like going to the medical clinic or hospital? How many of you are comfortable dealing with doctors or any other medical professionals? As a BIPOC person, meaning Black, Indigenous, or other person of color, have you or have you not been able to achieve the satisfactory health care outcomes that you have been seeking for yourself? No, I'm serious. I need help. No, I'm the one that needs help right now. For example, have you ever experienced difficulty as a BIPOC patient, individual, student, employee, or professional getting your doctor, health clinic, hospital, school, college, or university to pay attention to your medical concerns and to take them seriously, or to listen to you, period. Okay. We know the spelling. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Mm-hmm. I need your attention. Eyes to the front, please. How many of you, I mean BIPOC people, BIPOC nation. What? What did you say? Yes, you. All of you. Every single last one of you feel completely invisible, ignored, unacknowledged, or entirely abandoned by the healthcare system here in the United States and worldwide. Or here is another scenario Are you an ally to BIPOC populations? at any level, for any reason, who desires to listen, learn more, and to help defeat racial barriers to healthcare access, to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion in thought, intent, action, purpose, imagination, and transformation, and to align yourself with equitable health care for all. Finally, listeners, hello. Okay. Okay. Are you in dire need of novel, innovative, and straight gangster strategic solutions <laughs> to either you, your organization, or your institution's never-ending health care, diversity, equity, and inclusion conundrums? I'm going to tell you now, right now, that this is the podcast for all of you. <laughs> Elementary, my dear listeners. Ladies and gentlemen, 
It's time for the main event of the evening. Are you ready? Let's go. Namaste. Greetings. Oh, hello there, dear. I've been expecting you. Bienvenido. Bienvenue. Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Elementary, My Dear, Humanities in Medicine podcast experience. My name is Dr. Michelle K. Watson. My pronouns are she, her, hers, Ella, Aya, L. And as your bold, unabashedly intrepid host, I am pleased to have you accompany me on this sublime audio journey where the belief is that equity in healthcare can be both evolutionary and revolutionary. Our mission in medicine is to include and stay divine every single time. I am thrilled to have you accompany me on this journey to educate, investigate, evaluate, and create an open think tank for solutions necessary for achieving healthcare equity for BIPOC populations around the world. Yo, I do it for the people, the people who have a deep care for life, who come together in the name of the good, the folk of the earth, the everyday heroes in the common clothes, the open-minded and the big-hearted, the passionate, those that fight injustice with a fierce love, the gardeners, tree-huggers, clowns and teachers, students and preachers, outcasts, outlaws, underdogs, weirdos, witches and wizards, and the wounded healers, the mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, and all the trans folk, yo, I do for the people. First and foremost, some basic facts about me and how this project had been conceptualized over the years and finally brought to fruition. I am a violet, meaning my alma mater is New York University, affectionately known as NY to the U. As a part of my education in the Violet Dominion, prior to attending medical school, I was fortunate to have been educated by exceptionally prolific departments of psychology, psychobiology, psychiatry, and neural science. A substantial portion of the amazing education I received at NYU included the blessing 
via grants and awards to conduct research at the NYU School of Medicine, now known as the NYU Grossman School of Medicine, at the NYU Langone Medical Center. In my formative academic years, I was allowed access to the vast library system at NYU, local and international, to conduct my research affairs and fulfill those requirements. As I read medical journals, interacting with the wonderful librarians there, I noticed that I actually enjoyed evaluating these studies and learning more about medical research science. I simply could not stop reading because this is an audio podcast experience in its entirety for just a moment. If only for a moment, I am going to take us on a mind trip. to the days of radio when a DJ needed to find just the right song to set the mood or to get the crowd jumping. (laughs) This action has been referred to as digging in the crates. Can any of you listeners remember this? Okay, great. Now stay with me. We're back to the present. Not only did I read about my assigned topics, but I also frequently perused the stacks, unearthing other types of journals with even more nuanced and niched areas of focus concerning medicine and healthcare. I referred to this as digging in the stacks. I was completely hooked spending hours in the libraries, digging in the stacks throughout the NYU system. In time, while doing this, I amassed well over 20 years of some of the most unusual, off-the-beaten-path material in healthcare. Why this, do you ask? And why now? Well, health disparities have many causes, including unequal access to health care and other resources needed to stay healthy, unequal treatment within the health care system, and the physical and mental health consequences of BIPOC populations experiencing racism and discrimination continuously without abatement. While there have been many long-standing recalcitrant issues regarding this, They are not intractable. There are ways to reduce and even eliminate disparities, and we will be discussing this right here in this podcast series. What are the causes of disparities in healthcare? Why do disparities exist? Hmm. Hmm. We will now establish some definitions that will be adhered to throughout this podcast series. According to the National Academy of Sciences and the Institute of Medicine, IOM, as requested by United States Congress, 
Healthcare refers to the continuum of services provided in traditional healthcare settings, including medical clinics, hospitals, community health centers, hospices, nursing homes, other ancillary medical facilities, as well as home based care. The term healthcare services refers to the provision of preventive, diagnostic, rehabilitative, and or therapeutic medical or health services to individuals or populations. This encompasses both physical and mental health services. For the purposes of this podcast, discrimination refers to differences in care that result from biases, prejudices, stereotyping, and uncertainty in clinical communication and decision-making. I acknowledge that this is one that is limited in scope as there are other broader definitions incorporating a focus on intent to discriminate or on the disparate impact of discrimination. Disparities in healthcare are defined as ethnic and racial differences in the quality of healthcare that are not due to access-related factors or clinical needs, preferences, and appropriateness of intervention. With basic definition housekeeping out of the way, let's get into this. Racial and ethnic health disparities have many causes. These include unequal access to health care and other resources that influence health, as well as unequal treatment within the healthcare system and the psychological and physiological effects of racism and discrimination. Compared to their white counterparts, BIPOC, meaning Black, Indigenous, or other persons of color, patients are more likely to live in poorer health and to die younger. I... I don't hate anyone. Black and Latinx individuals have poorer health outcomes than white counterparts, including higher rates of asthma, obesity, diabetes mellitus, cancer, inflammation, heart disease, cerebrovascular accident or stroke, hypertension, and infant and maternal mortality. BIPOC communities tend to experience a disproportionate burden of chronic and infectious illness with a subsequent higher associated overall mortality. Due to systemic and structuralized inequities that have been well-documented historically, BIPOC populations have endured racism within American society and internationally for centuries. Studies conducted over time have been consistent in concluding that racism not only impacts social stratification, but also the ability of BIPOC individuals to be healthy, both mentally and physically. This burden, a burden that is indeed inescapable for black and brown people in this country, causes African-Americans, Asian-American Pacific Islanders, Native American, Indigenous, Middle Eastern, and Latinx populations specifically to die prematurely and experience chronic illnesses and mental health challenges at higher rates than white Americans. 
minority beneficiaries of publicly funded health programs are less likely to receive quality health care. Research indicates that those enrolled in publicly funded managed care plans are less likely to access services after mandatory enrollment in an HMO compared with whites. Nearly 14 million Americans are not proficient in English, and as many as one in five Spanish-speaking Latinx individuals reports not seeking medical assistance due to language barriers. I'm the one that needs help right now. In a study of the availability of opioid supplies, it was revealed that only one in four pharmacies located in predominantly non-white neighborhoods carried adequate supplies, in comparison to 72% of pharmacies in predominantly white neighborhoods. I just don't get it. Similar findings were yielded in some of the earliest studies looking at the impact of racism on the health of African Americans by University of Michigan public health researcher Arlene Geronimus. After looking at biological factors associated with exposure to stressors, Geronimus hypothesized in what is also referred to as the weathering hypothesis that African Americans experienced profound health deterioration because of those stressors. Geronimus examined the allostatic load scores, that is, the cumulative wear and tear on the body system brought on by the repeated adaptation to stressors for adults aged 18 to 64 years. African Americans specifically were found to have higher scores than white Americans. Once again, Poverty was ruled out as a factor due to the fact that the higher allostatic loads existed among African Americans of various socioeconomic backgrounds. Geronimus concluded that racism and the burden of coping with it across the lifespan leads to differences in health among African Americans and white Americans including the onset of chronic illness and premature death. In addition to instigating poor health outcomes among BIPOC individuals, racism also creates barriers to economic opportunity and uneven access to health care. You all don't want no static. This has been well documented with examples including differences in pain management and treatment of BIPOC patients when compared to whites experiencing the same health conditions. The use of African Americans and Native Americans' bodies in unauthorized, unconsented medical experimentation and racial bias in health algorithms for the purpose of guiding health decisions and assessing health care costs. Actions like these have led to a general mistrust of the healthcare system within the BIPOC community. Racism cannot be divorced from the other social factors outlined, which give reason to the fact that BIPOC persons are disproportionately affected by them. Due to residential segregation, majority African American and Latinx areas are more likely to lack hospital and other health care providers 
and medical ancillary supports. This fact was made crystal clear to the public during the coronavirus pandemic when Elmhurst Hospital, a facility under the New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation umbrella, experienced a seemingly disproportionate deluge of patients in comparison to other medical centers. It has been said before, and I will say it again here, location, location, location is as important to access to health care as it is to real estate. Therefore, time and place matters. In the Institute of Medicine IOM report, measuring the quality of health care, quality of care is defined as the degree to which health services for individuals and populations increase the likelihood of desired health outcomes and are consistent with current health knowledge. Hmm. I personally dislike this definition, secondary to the fact that a decent portion of this so-called current health knowledge in relation to BIPOC populations is based upon the faulty foundations of stereotyping, preconceived notions, and erroneous medicine of the plantation variety. I advise you all to stay locked into this podcast journey as we discuss these issues together as a community. Yo, I do it for the people. I'm glad I got my people. When healthcare providers are located within majority African-American and Latinx neighborhoods, they tend to offer lower quality health care. When healthcare centers are located within majority African-American and Latinx neighborhoods, they tend to have extended wait times, canceled appointments, and provide primary medical care by non-physician support staff. Often, people of color find themselves relying heavily on community health centers, urgent care centers, emergency rooms, outpatient care, and other community-based providers due to the lack of available physician primary care and mental health providers in a given geographic area. Minority patients are less likely to benefit from a consistent relationship with the physician primary care provider, even when insured at the same levels as white patients due to the relative lack of providers located in their immediate communities. Traveling outside of the immediate geographic area to access health care may be an option for some people, yet this can be a challenge and costly due to lack of access to transportation for those with limited incomes or for those living in rural areas. Certain social factors also referred to as social determinants of health, have important implications for health risk and the ability to attain health insurance coverage. Poverty, income inequality, wealth inequality, food insecurity, and the lack of safe, affordable housing are just a few. The institutionalized racism that permeates American life is an important social factor leading to poor health outcomes and economic disadvantage among BIPOC persons because not only is it a stressor, 
but it impacts who gets what in America and where, particularly in relation to health care. Of course, the inappropriateness of physician behavior, particularly when it is specifically informed by the capably corrupted hands of racism. For example, there is a substantive body of published research confirming that racial and ethnic minorities are less likely to receive even the most routine medical procedures and intensive care than are white Americans. Inadequately treated and managed diabetes mellitus in minorities can result in more expensive complications, such as end-stage renal disease requiring peritoneal dialysis or kidney transplantation. Even when this is the case, these patients are still less likely to receive peritoneal dialysis and kidney transplantation. African Americans, Asian American Pacific Islander, Native American, Arab American, and Latinx patients are less likely to receive appropriate cardiac medications or to undergo coronary artery bypass surgery or cabbage. Minority patients are less likely to receive the appropriate cancer diagnostic tests, treatments, and analgesics. And in terms of infectious disease, like HIV and AIDS, African Americans are the least likely of all patients to receive antiretroviral therapy, prophylaxis for pneumocystic pneumonia, and protease inhibitor medications. This disparity in particular remains steadfast, even when adjusting for age, gender, education, CD4 cell count, and insurance coverage. No, 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 no. That was just a mild overview. It is imperative, however, that BIPOC communities who have a history of zero involvement in the conversations concerning them swirling around them, get in front of the issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, creating their own dialogues, discourses, and resolutions, owning them before the socially dominant culture does it for them. It is also of importance that the institutions of medicine and health value, acknowledge, and leverage the abundant socio-cultural resources as well as the multiplicity and breadth of human experiences existing in traditionally marginalized communities. Cultural plurality should not acquiesce to cultural assimilation. The elementary, my dear, Humanities in Medicine project repertoire will endeavor to cultivate an expansive fund of knowledge concerning medical inclusivity and to be the architect of a culturally sustainable infrastructure of benefit to healthcare institutions internationally. Informed, culturally relevant content, custom created and curated with sensitivity for an informed listener base, for a more informed future. That is the mission, vision, and purpose of the elementary, my dear, Humanities in Medicine podcast experience. This is heavy stuff, isn't it? Too heavy. Never fear. Let's have a little free movement time, a community move and shake 
to lighten things up a bit. And we're back. You all didn't expect that in a medical podcast, now did you? I am Dr. Michelle K. Watson, producer and creator of the Elementary My Dear Humanity in Medicine podcast experience. Join me on this audio revolution for a new episode every month on all major podcast hosting platforms. Yes, I do things a little bit differently and view the world quite differently than many doctors do. This is public health and medicine done my way. I am definitely not the stereotypical straight-laced doctor, and I don't need to be. In the face of a pandemic, medical professionals and healthcare experts need to reach an expansive audience that desperately needs them, their expertise, their services, and is seeking their assistance to meet them where they are at and not the other way around. 60% of millennials, 60%, do not have a designated primary care physician or GP, general practitioner, as it is referred to by our friends across the pond in the UK. In a country like America, with a plethora, a veritable panoply of resources, this is outrageous. Let healthcare professionals help them to develop healthy routines today and not when it is too late. The next topic we are about to discuss today is not for tender, impressionable little eyes and ears. I repeat, not for little eyes and ears. The topics involved in the next segment of this podcast are for adults only not for small children, and do involve issues of lewd, openly suggestive behavior, sexual abuse, complex feminine anatomical references, and the blatant disrespect and exploitation of women patients at various stages of vulnerability. For the parents, caregivers, teachers, et al., We will now remove ourselves from the innocent little ones for a spell. Count down. Here we go. Get away from the little ones in... Zero. One. Two. Three. Four. Five. Six. Seven. Eight. Nine. Ten. Today's discussion... 
centers around what I consider to be a rather brave article referencing the inappropriateness of physician conduct from one of my favorite medical journals, the tried-and-true staple, the Annals of Internal Medicine. For medical schools, doctors, educators, medical, PA, nursing, or any interested of-age students, high school, college, university, undergraduate, graduate, and professional, as well as for any other academic centers, medical trade schools, and institutions of higher learning, pillars of pedagogy, and for the purpose of satisfying NSF or National Science Foundation STEM educational requirements under EHR racial equity, ITEST, AISL, MCA, NIH, CDC, and the NYU Metropolitan Center for Research on Equity and the Transformation of Schools, and the State Department of Education, CR-S, or Culturally Responsive Sustaining Education. This article was published by the Annals in 2015, Volume 163, Number 4. It is a submission under the On Being a Doctor essay series published by this esteemed medical journal entitled On Being a Doctor, Shining a Light on the Dark Side by Drs. Christine Lane, Darren B. Takeman, and Michael A. Lacombe. This issue includes an On Being a Doctor essay titled Our Family Secrets that we think and hope will make readers' stomachs churn. In this essay, the author describes teaching a medical humanities course to senior medical students and asking, do any of you have someone to forgive from your clinical experiences? Did anything ever happen that you need to forgive or perhaps still can't forgive? One of the students, clearly distraught, recounts lacking the courage to object to a surgeon's highly disrespectful behavior to a patient under general anesthesia for a vaginal hysterectomy. The author then recounts how he was an accomplice to the harrowing behavior of an obstetrician during a delivery complicated by uterine atony and hemorrhage. The first incident reeked of misogyny and disrespect. The second reeked of all that, plus heavy undertones of sexual assault and racism. Although we wish it were otherwise, most physicians at some point find themselves in the midst of situations where a colleague acts in a manner that is disrespectful to a patient. There are various ways that we might react when witnessing such behavior. When the perpetrator is a superior, we may feel pressure to join in as the author and his student did. After all, it was just a joke 
and the patient was unaware, right? Alternatively, we might simply remain silent. Saying nothing robs the perpetrator of an audience and hopefully extinguishes the incentive to continue the behavior. Or we might be the anesthesiologist in the essay and demand an end to the behavior and even chastise the perpetrators. Although we knew of no empirical evidence about which response is most common, we speculate that it is silence and that there are too few anesthesiologists among us. If the essay gives just one physician the courage to act like the anesthesiologist in this story, then it will have been well worth publishing. It is our hope that the essay will gnaw on the consciences of readers, and in our case, listeners, who may recall an instance of their own repugnant behavior. The story is an opportunity to see what this behavior looks like to others and starkly shows that it is anything but funny. After finishing it, readers guilty of previous offense will hopefully think twice before acting in a manner that demeans patients and makes trainees and colleagues squirm. Again, if the essay squelches such behavior even once, then it was well worth publishing. Ambiguity magnifies the power of the essay. Is the author struggling to forgive the surgeon for his poor treatment of Mrs. Lopez? Or is he struggling to forgive himself for joining in the antics or for not acting more like the anesthesiologist? Is it right to be appalled by the surgeon when, despite his oafish behavior, he really did save the patient's life? Saving a patient's life seems like a pretty good demonstration of respect, doesn't it? Multiple interpretations of the piece are valid and lend insight. They were reflected in the lengthy and heated discussion that occurred among our editorial team when considering whether to publish this story. The discussion was so impassioned and opinions so disparate that we needed a time out and came back to it a week later after we had ample time to contemplate the issues raised. We all agreed that the piece was disgusting and scandalous and could damage the profession's reputation. Escandalosa! Some believed that this was reason not to publish the story. Others believed that it was precisely why we should publish it. When we finally decided to publish the essay, we did so under the condition that the author would remain anonymous. We have done this in only one other instance. Then, as now, we did so to protect the identity of any person who might be identified, most importantly, the patient. We hope that medical educators and others will use this essay as a jumping off point for discussions that explore the reasons why physicians sometimes behave badly and brainstorm strategies for handling these ugly situations in real time. By shining a light on this dark side of the profession, we emphasize to physicians young and old that this behavior is unacceptable. 
we should not only refrain from personally acting in such a manner, but also call out our colleagues who do. We all need the strength to act like the anesthesiologist in this story and call our colleagues assholes when that label is appropriate. We owe it to ourselves, to our profession, and especially to our patients. Let the Church of Present-Day Physicians say amen. This is my physician's desk reference. I am what it says I am. I can prescribe what it says I can prescribe. Now, where did I get that from? Many on Being a Doctor essays highlight positive aspects of our profession and are uplifting and inspirational. Why did we choose to publish something that exposes medicine's dark underbelly? If you haven't read the essay, let us read it now, together. Here goes. One day in January, I was facilitating a fourth-year elective course with eight medical students. It was a medical humanities class, and the topic that afternoon was the virtue of forgiveness. A student named David led the discussion, and I listened as they exchanged ideas. When their energy waned, I asked, Do any of you have someone to forgive from your clinical experiences? Did anything ever happen that you need to forgive or perhaps still can't forgive? I waited for an answer, but no one said a word. When a classroom becomes that quiet in response to a question, I sometimes have the strength to sit with the silence. So I looked out the window and waited. I leaned back in my chair and waited. Finally, David said, something unforgivable happened to me. What happened? I asked him. I was scrubbed into a vaginal hysterectomy. The patient was under general anesthesia. My attending was prepping the patient's vagina. He picked up a clamp holding sterile cotton balls and dipped them into betadine. While he was cleansing and scrubbing her labia and inner thighs, he looked at me and said, I bet she's enjoying this. My attending winked at me and laughed. <laughs> Someone gasped. I stared at David. He shifted in his seat and crossed his arms on his chest. A splotchy red rash appeared on his neck. Staring down at the table, he murmured, Man, I was just trying to learn. This guy was a dirtball. It still pisses me off.
you know what? As a physician, that doctor's bad behavior makes me angry too. Women's reproductive choices, rights, and health are a monumental societal issue right now. Here's what we're going to do about it. Ladies, and for the fine gentlemen who love and are protective of the ladies in their lives, wives, mothers, fiancés, girlfriends, sisters, daughters, nieces, and cousins, and want to shield them from physical pain caused by unnecessary exams or procedures, mental anguish, and emotional trauma? Ask your female loved ones some of the following questions. Were you told to get completely naked at every single doctor's appointment, regardless of the nature of the visit or length? Are your visit lengths or time with the doctor noticeably longer than other patients for no apparent reason at all? Was your request for a chaperone denied by the doctor? Who are you? Get away from me! <laughs> no! Were you subjected to inappropriate or suggestive comments or looks? Please stop! I'm scared! Were you ever requested to initiate or maintain a personal relationship with your doctor outside of normal office hours? Hold on. There's more. Were you ever scheduled by your doctor for frequent, closely spaced follow-up visits without explanation? Was a vaginal exam performed at every single visit without explanation or contrary to your protests? Did the physician ask you to jump up and down, wiggle or jiggle, bend over and touch your toes while you were completely naked? Did the physician ever fail to explain what he or she was doing while examining you or not answer your questions while you were being examined? The least you can do is to do what he asks when he asks it. No, you don't. Did the OBGYN offer to perform explicit and detailed full-body mole checks during your visit? Or did the OBGYN inform you of your needing more than one pap smear annually without further explanation or justification? A yes answer to any of these questions is a potential matter of concern and may be suggestive of some form of predatory physician behavior. <laughs> to become better informed, stay tuned to this podcast for future episodes and uncover additional resources from the information listed in the description area. Also, visit www.predatoryobgyn.com and take that quiz to find out your score. Predatory OBGYN. Yes, I said it. www.predatoryobgyn.com. Stay informed, but of course, be certain to like, share, subscribe, and comment.
And we're back to the article. Someone gasped. I stared at David. He shifted in his seat and crossed his arms on his chest. A splotchy red rash appeared on his neck. Staring down at the table, he murmured, Man, I was just standing there trying to learn. The guy was a dirt ball. It still pisses me off. David glanced at me. I asked, when your attending said that and laughed, did you laugh too? My question touched a nerve. Perhaps my tone was accusatory. David snapped back. Yeah, I laughed. But what was I supposed to do? Have you ever been in a situation like that? I looked down at the table in front of me and saw my black ballpoint pen. I focused on its gold clip for a moment. I placed my index finger and thumb beside the pen and spun it in place. It twirled and clicked as it spun around and around. I stared at the rotating pen and remembered. I felt my face flush. The spinning pen slowed, and then the clicking stopped. I looked at David. Yes, I have. So what happened? David asked. It's my third year of medical school, and I'm on OBGYN. I deliver a baby girl and put her in her mother's arms. I can still remember the mom's name, Mrs. Lopez. I deliver the placenta, put it in a pan, and inspect it. It's intact. Then I turn back to Mrs. Lopez. I see blood gushing from her vagina. It comes in waves. I've never seen anything like it. I yell to my resident. The guy's name is Dr. Canby. Hey, something's wrong. She's really bleeding over here. He shoulders me out of the way and checks her perineum for a laceration. There is none. He puts his hand on her abdomen and aggressively massages her uterus. She keeps bleeding. <laughs> no. Then Dr. Canby says, she's got uterine atony. Start oxytocin and call anesthesia. A nurse lifts the baby off the patient's chest. A few moments later, the anesthesiologist walks into the room and asks, what do you got? Dr. Canby says, vaginal delivery, uterine atony, external massage failed. Give her some ketamine. Anyway, so I hear the anesthesiologist say, ketamine is in. I look at Mrs. Lopez. Her eyes are half closed and vacant. Oh, no. Dr. Canby instructs me to hold her knee. A fellow medical student holds her other knee. Our job is to keep her legs spread. Canby then performs an internal bimanual uterine massage. He places his left hand inside her vagina, makes a fist, and presses it against her uterus. I look down and see only his wrist. His entire hand is inside her. Canby puts his right hand on her abdomen and then massages her uterus between his hands. After a few minutes, he feels the uterus contract and harden. He says something like, Atta girl, that's what I like, a nice tight uterus. And the bleeding stops. 
The guy saved her life. I was blown away. But then something happened that I'll never forget. Dr. Canby raises his right hand into the air. He starts to sing La Cucaracha. He sings La Cucaracha, La Cucaracha, da 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 da. It looks like he is dancing with her. He stomps his feet. He twists his body and waves his right arm above his head. All the while, he holds her, his whole hand still inside her vagina. He starts laughing. He keeps dancing. And then he looks at me. I begin to sway to his beat. My feet shuffle. I hum and laugh along with him. Moments later, the anesthesiologist yells, Knock it off, assholes! And we stop. A few others look at me with blank stares. They are all quiet. I know this is my silence to break. Okay, now that was a mouthful. If you are like any one of us, or human at all, I am sure there are many emotions surrounding you as you try to process all of what you have just heard. You are most likely thinking, what on earth did I just listen to? Escandalosa! Quite honestly, when I encountered this article years ago, my first question was, where in the world was Mr. Lopez when all of this was being done to Mrs. Lopez? Had she any support system at all in that delivery room? A woman's most vulnerable state is both during and after labor and delivery, hands down in my opinion. Why did that morally vacant and ethically bankrupt unprofessional doctor can be, that miscreant, mendicant, and reprobate, feel so free to engage this woman, Mrs. Lopez, in such a disrespectful manner? Why was she so recklessly abused? Finally, why was her ethnicity and or heritage made an issue in the first place? Parturition, or the act of giving birth, bringing another life into the world, should be a joyous, miraculously liberating event for a new mother, regardless of race, creed, or national origin. It should never, ever be this. This man is an embarrassment to good, upstanding, reputable OBGYNs everywhere. Again, much gratitude to the Annals of Internal Medicine and Drs. Lane, Takeman, and Lacombe for creating and publishing this essay. To learn more about my experiences in diversity, equity, and inclusion as a physician, purchase my book, The Women of Purpose Anthology, a collection of inspiring stories from empowered women 
from all walks of life. For more information, head on over to the links listed in the description area. As always, be certain to like, share, subscribe, and comment. You can also learn more about diversity, equity, and inclusion done the Elementary My Dear Way, located at the Elementary My Dear Edutainment Media teachable.com. BIPOC communities stand to make significant gains if health reform is done correctly. The issues briefly outlined earlier in this podcast paint a grim picture. Regardless of the progress made in recent decades, far too many BIPOC individuals still struggle to lead healthy and economically secure lives. This is due to the longstanding effects of racism, marginalization, and discrimination, which touches all members of BIPOC nations, regardless of socioeconomic status. These effects can be reversed, but it will take real commitment, teamwork, and systemic change. The reality of persistent racial inequities tears at the social fabric of nations and undeniably contributes to the gulf of understanding between racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic groups. Healthcare reform must be part of the effort. I will now reference an excerpt from the CIRAC 38 prayer about physicians' sickness and death. Perhaps some of you are familiar with it. Make friends with the doctor, for he is essential to you. God has also established him in his profession. From God, the doctor has his wisdom, and from the king, he receives sustenance. Knowledge makes the doctor distinguished and gives access to those in authority. God makes the earth yield healing herbs, which the prudent should not neglect. Was not the water sweetened by a twig so that all might learn his power? He endows people with knowledge to glory in his mighty works, through which the doctor eases pain and the druggist prepares his medicines. Thus God's work continues without cease in its efficacy on the surface of the earth. My son, when you are ill, do not delay, but pray to God, for it is he who heals. Flee wickedness and purify your hands, cleanse your heart of every sin, offer your sweet-smelling oblation and memorial, a generous offering according to your means. Then give the doctor his place, lest he leave, you need him too. For there are times when recovery is in his hands. He too prays to God that his diagnosis may be correct and his treatment bring about a cure. Whoever is a sinner before his maker will be defiant before the doctor. Do no harm, my doctors. Do no harm, my people. Do no harm. I express my gratitude for your esteemed presence and thank all all my listeners, the elementary My Dear Evolution tribe, who vibe with me and who have accompanied me on this listening experience, I wish you all a lifestyle of good health, a sound mind, body, soul, and spirit connection, and I urge all of you to remember, 
If it isn't good for you, it most likely isn't good for someone else. Let's work together to do better for and by one another. Informed, culturally relevant content, custom created and curated with sensitivity for an informed listener base for a more informed future. Elementary, my dear listeners. Once again, I am Dr. Michelle K. Watson, producer and creator of the Elementary My Dear Humanities in Medicine podcast experience. Join me on this audio revolution for a new episode every month on all major podcast hosting platforms. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and comment at the information listed in the description area. If you wish to donate to support and contribute to the Elementary My Dear Humanities and Medicine podcast experience revolution, becoming a supporter and benefactor to the creation of avant-garde content of exceptional quality, again, feel free to do so at the information listed in the description area. Pertinent hashtags include hashtag live well with Dr. Michelle, hashtag learn well with Dr. Michelle. And I thank you for allowing me through this audio podcast experience to be of service to you. This is Dr. Michelle K. Watson signing off, wishing all of you a safe and equitable life journey until we meet again for the next episode in this revolution. Evolve safely. Be the change you want to see in the world. Namaste. Yo, I do it for the people. I'm glad I got my people. Where would I be without my people? Thank you.